How great do you think God is? Really, honestly. How great do you think God is? I mean, singing those words, does it excite you? Does it move you? Do you feel chill bumps? Do you, do you even stop to consider how great God is? I mean, it's an amazing thing. Paul, um, in Philippians, we were memorizing uh, on Wednesday nights, there's a group of us men that have gotten together and we're memorizing the book of Philippians and we'll move on to another book as we move past that, as we finish it. But this last week was a very moving set of verses as Paul spoke about and, and, and admitted that even as he had so much to brag on in his heritage, in his identity, who he was as an Israelite, who he was as to the law, he said he was blameless. But then he turns and he says, but I count it all loss for the sake of Christ. And he mentions in the midst of that passage the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul counted knowing Jesus greater than any other thing. Any, more than his work that he could do, more than his lineage could provide him, more than anything he had to offer or this world had to offer, Paul recognized Jesus and his surpassing worth how great do you think God is? And really today as we move into our passage, that question, I had no idea they were going to sing this song, but that question is really the heart of the message. It's really at the heart of what the, the, this passage is going to bring us to. Acts chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. But the reality is, is that the things that we do in our life, the ways that we live our life, the choices that we make, the things that we do, the actions that we take, they truly demonstrate where our allegiances lie and they truly demonstrate what we think of our God and who our God really is. You see, you and I as humans cannot be neutral in the spiritual war that rages around us. We cannot be neutral. It's impossible. We can't opt out of this. It's not like we can be Sweden and say, well, we just don't want to take part. And then here and there do little things along the way that demonstrate we really want to be a part of it. Or that at least take part in it. We can't be neutral in that. The, the, the things that we do, the, 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 the things that we think, the words we say, the actions we make... inadvertently, whether intentionally or not, demonstrate where we stand. As we've made our way through this book of Acts, we've seen over and over gospel movement, gospel movement. That's what the book of Acts is all about, gospel movement. It started and it began to move. The, the church was planted and it began to move. God's message, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners and that through him, we can have redemption and be reconnected to our Creator. That message, God's message, was being moved along by God's power. Amazing things were happening. Crazy, miraculous events were taking place. God's message being moved by God's power, redeeming God's people. Thousands of people were coming to know Christ. 
Thousands. On the, the, the first event that we see was Pentecost. 3,000 came to believe. The next event that we're given a number for is just a, we, we don't know the time span between them, but, but there was a, a moment where Peter and John had healed a, a lame guy, a guy who couldn't walk, and it says 2,000 men were added. So at least 2,000 people that day came to know Christ. God's message, being moved by God's power, redeeming God's people. This is God's mission. Redemption and renewal. Bringing back what was dead, bringing it back to life, and then making it new. That's his mission. That's what he's been about doing. And that's what we've been seeing happen in this book of Acts. And the reality is, is that you and I can't be neutral in this work. We are either for it or we are against it. You don't, get a, you, you don't get to opt in or out. You can't decide, well, I don't want anything to do with it. Because of who we are, we don't have a choice in this. As we've seen this happening, we have really focused on and, and really been, been confronted with how drastic this work has been and how successful it has been. And it just seemed like it was effortless. It just seemed like God was sending people out and just boom, the church was growing like, like crazy. There's some people who estimate that at this point, as we come to our passage today, that at this point the church was somewhere around 20,000 people. I don't know if that number's right or not. There's no way for us to prove it. But if you figure that there was 3,000 people one day, 2,000 people, 2,000 men specifically another day, that, that, that the church was likely, if you add women and children into that, that it was likely at least around 10,000. So there's, it's just continuing to grow and this massive, amazing thing happening. But today, and really last week, we, we entered into a passage that really begins to demonstrate opposition. And today, we're going to turn a corner ourselves as we look to the Scripture. We're going to turn a corner and, and not look just at the success, but look at the opposition. And I want you to see and hear. I want you to, I want you to carry this and I want you to think about this. That there are two sides in this war. There are two sides. And you will align with one of them, whether you intend to or not. It's extremely important that we think about what we're doing and that we pay attention to where we're headed and we think about the actions we take. Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 32 this week. Let me just give you a little backstory so that before you get into it, you understand what happened. Peter and John went up to the temple. They were, they were going about normal life. They went up to the temple. They see a guy who can't walk as they enter into the temple. And he asks them for money. And they say, sorry, we don't have that. But what we do have is this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And this guy's legs that were bent over and broken and shriveled from birth, they, they were absolutely worthless. He had never stepped foot on his legs a day in his life. He had never walked. His legs straightened out. There was a physical, actual thing that people could see happening, and his legs straightened out, and he got up, and he stood on them. And he walked, and he leaped. And he was excited, and he was praising God. And this power, this, this act of power that Jesus Christ did through Peter and John gave them an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so right there in the midst of the temple, on the enemy's home court, right in the midst of, 
of lost central self-righteousness central. Right in the middle of all of that, Peter and John stand and preach Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and him the only hope for salvation. An amazing event, an amazing moment. And they arrest them. And it was in that moment that the first sign of persecution or opposition was noticed. Because they didn't like the message. The Jews didn't like it. The leaders of the day, they couldn't stand it. In fact, there was many who just were, were struck by and angered, angered by it because they didn't believe in resurrection at all. They were called Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they, they came and they arrested these men and they said, Hey, you know what? We, we don't want you preaching that. We don't want you telling people about this. Keep your mouth shut. And the next day, they put them on trial. And obviously, there was no reason they could keep them. They found no reason to to hold them. And they recognized that if they had kept them, the, the people that were supposedly following them would be angry because there were so many so many witnesses to the power, uh, the, the powerful work or the powerful healing that they had performed. And so they say, you know what, we're going to let you go, but you, you can only go with... Wow. That's loud. Hmm. Wake up. You can only go if you quit preaching Jesus Christ... You, you, can't, you can't leave if you're going to continue to preach about Jesus. And Peter and John, they saw exactly what was happening right in that moment. And they say, look, you talk to God about this. Are we supposed to obey you or are we, are, are we supposed to obey him? You see, here's the two choices. And this is the choice that we're faced with daily. You're either going to be in opposition to God or in opposition to, to people. You can either be on God's team or you can be on people's team. doesn't mean that you're a jerk or that you don't like people because there's plenty of people that are on God's team. But you can't serve the world and serve God. It is impossible. You can't do both. In everything we do, in every choice we make, we have the opportunity to align ourselves with God or align ourselves with people. So the point that I want you to see today, and and I want you to hear as we read through this passage, is that in this world, there is opposition to God's work. We don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to run in fear or hide from it. Because when we do, we're not moving his mission forward. We're not moving his gospel forward. In fact, we're helping the other side. You see, the real issue at hand here, the real issue, the real heart of the matter is God's glory and how you consider His worth. What do you think of God? What do you think of His Son, Jesus Christ? What do you think of the work that He's done for you and in you? Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul... And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold 
and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I just want you to get the picture of this. This is, this is Luke sharing with us again. He did this in chapter 2 as well. He's giving us an image, a picture of what the church life was like at that moment. It was beautiful. I mean, imagine this, this place where unity, love, and harmony are just all over the place. They are unified. They're one in heart and mind. They are working for a common purpose. They are moving a common direction. They are loving the same Jesus. And in love, they were actively loving one another. They didn't consider their own selves or their own needs as more important than another's. They would look around and as they saw need, they would want to see it met. And so they began to sell the things that they owned. And they'd bring those proceeds to the apostles and they'd say, you do with it what needs to be done. Make sure needs are met. And so no one had need. There's this euphoric or, or harmonious existence. This is beautiful. I mean, it's the beautiful picture of what the church was intended to be. And imagine the glory of God being demonstrated in this. Imagine what it looks like for a people to be more about others and loving their God than themselves. You couldn't even find this in the most righteous of right people in the Jewish faith. They didn't even have this. They didn't live this way. Sure, they might do good things, and they might be, be very moral people. But at the heart of their lives were themselves. They were sold to demonstrating themselves as right. They were all about trying to prove to the world that they were worthy of God's adoration and God's love. They wanted people to know how good they were. But in the church, that's not what we have. That's not what we see We see this love, this unity, this harmony in existence. And as they they live this life, I I don't want you to hear this as being the, the, the thing that we need to just strive for and forget everything else. And let's just go back to community life in the sense that we all own things together. Because this is not teaching communal ownership. This is not about us just going all in and and. You own my house and I own yours and we just have the deeds in this one place. That's, that's not what it's about. You see, they individually owned it. There was communal sharing. There was communal use. People were allowing one another to use their things. But it wasn't communal ownership. We don't need to go off and run off into the world and go someplace that's distant and distinct from everyone else and just build this community that, that's all ours. And you you can just walk into my house anytime and I can just walk into yours and there's no separation or distinction. That's not what this is teaching. There's times you don't want to walk into my house, I'm just going to tell you. So call before you're coming. This isn't teaching that it's wrong to own things. It's not teaching that it's wrong to have property. It's not more righteous to sell property and give the stuff away than it is to have property and use it for God's glory. It's not more righteous to to do this. This is not what this is teaching. It's it's not teaching that, that we can't have stuff. But what we do see it teaching is that people recognized others more than they recognized themselves. They recognized others' needs. They recognized the, the importance of other people more than they recognize themselves and the things that they have. And they allowed God to take it and use it as He would. 
And they allowed him to, to bless others, to serve others' needs, to, to grow the church, not just in size and the number of people, but in its strength and its ability to perform and its ability to, to live life and do life in such a way that it demonstrated his glory in the midst of darkness. And see, and it's so beautiful. It's an amazing picture. And he goes on to share about a particular man. In verse 36, Luke writes, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here we have specifically what Luke is just sharing in general. Barnabas. The same Barnabas that would later go with Paul on his mission trips, or at least his initial mission trips. So as Paul would go out and travel around, Barnabas was with him, doing the work with him. Barnabas was also called an apostle. I think it's around in Acts 13 or 14. Uh, Barnabas also was the guy that when Paul was angry at this young guy, Mark, for making a mistake, Barnabas stood up in opposition to Paul and said, You're wrong, man. You really ought to let him go with us. He's got good things to do. He's got, he's got opportunity. He's, you know, he's one of God's children. He should be going with us. Barnabas stood up in opposition to Paul, and Paul, when he wouldn't do it, when, it, when, it, when he, they wouldn't agree, they split ways, and they went different directions. The interesting thing is, at the, at the end of Paul's life, he calls for Mark. So at some point along the way, he recognized his own mistake, and he asked that Mark be sent to him. Because he did recognize his worth. It's pretty interesting, really. But Barnabas, he was, this, he was this guy that, you know, his name was Joseph. But because he was such an encouragement to people, because he was such a, a, a person that had been changed by Christ to the point that, that he was all about others being, being encouraged and being blessed and uplifted, they called him that. Barnabas, son of encouragement. That's who this guy is. And it's also important, I think, to note that Luke tells us he's a Levite. Now, for most of us, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but the reality is, is that under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, Barnabas would not have been able to own land. He couldn't have owned land because he was a Levite, and it was not legal for Levites to own land. Now, we don't know if they were still observing that rule by this time, but because they were so self-righteous and so sold to the law, it's hard for me to imagine that they wouldn't be because they were doing everything else. So Barnabas, likely under the old covenant in his Jewish tradition, he would not have been able to own land, and he probably only came to own this plot of land that he's about to sell after he came to Christ and after he walked away from Judaism. So imagine how special a thing this is to him. He's likely never owned anything in his life. You, how many of you have bought your first house? How special does it feel to own your first house? Some of you maybe not so good as others, depending on your house. But there's a, there's a stake in it, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a landmark point in your life to own something. When, when, I, when I was 16 or, I was 17 actually, I bought my first car, it was a 76 Monte Carlo, had more rust on it than paint, um, it was a beautiful car. The muffler fell off at one point and we left that off on purpose because it made so much noise, it was, it was a lot of fun. But there was this beauty to that. Now, just imagine this guy's never been able to own a thing in his life. All of a sudden, he has this piece of land. And he looks around. And he sees need. And he says, you know what? That's more important 
than me owning that. And he sells it, and he brings the money to the apostles. Do with it what you need to do with it, and he turns and walks away. The son of encouragement. A man who cares more about others than he does himself. And then we get the contrast. In verse, chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife knowledge, wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, <clears throat> this, is, this is tough truth. I'm just going to tell you. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm glad that the lies that I've told have not resulted in something like this. In all like, likelihood, every one of us have told a lie within the last 48 hours of some sort or other. Maybe just a little white lie. Maybe, maybe it's not that big a deal. But imagine, here's Ananias. He walks in. I've got this money. He's feeling really good about himself. He's got this plan feeling great about himself, wanting everybody else to recognize how great he is. And he lays this money at the apostles' feet. And immediately Peter sees it and recognizes it. Deceit. For me, because I've been watching Lie to Me lately, I imagine this to be like a Cal Lightman moment where he's tilting his head and he's getting all up in his face. What are you thinking? Letting Satan do this. Wasn't that property yours? Wasn't it yours to do with as you please? Wasn't as long as you had the money, even after you sold it, couldn't have you done what you wanted to do with the money? But yet you come in here and betray a lie, portray a lie in front of everyone. You see, what we can see in this passage is not that, it's not that it was wrong for Ananias to keep some of the money. Ananias could have kept all the money. Ananias could have kept some of the money, or he could have kept none of the money. But what he did was he went in acting as if he was giving it all while he was keeping some. And what that teaches us about Ananias is that he wanted the praise of people. He wanted to be exalted and adored and honored in front of men. See, he was more important to himself than even his friends were. He was, he was so important to himself that he thought that others should look at him and honor him. He and his wife were so sold on themselves and so focused on themselves that they wanted the praise and honor and glory that came with the adoration that came with giving this money. You see, because as they looked around, they saw men like Barnabas doing this great, good work and they saw the pats on the back that Barnabas received. And they, and, they, and they were encouraged by that. And they thought, you know what? We can have some of that too. That can be ours too. 
So they got this plan together and they sold this property and they, they bring some of their money as if it was all of it. And Peter saw it immediately. Obviously, it was a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, it was work of God in Peter. Peter sees it, he questions it, and he confronts him with the truth. You see, Ananias, what you have done is not just lied to men, but you've lied to God. You see, this wasn't just Ananias standing before church leaders and lying. That's important and it's big. But he had set himself at odds with God. You see, the heart of the matter is the glory of God. Because Ananias wanted God's glory. Ananias wanted to be the one praised and adored and thanked and, and, and patted on the back. He wanted, the, he, he wanted to be the one that was worshipped. He wanted people to see his worth and value. Instead of giving it to the God that really deserved it. See, he set himself at odds with God. And Ananias' wife, well, you know, she, she knew about it. She wasn't there at that moment. But in verse 6, it says, The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. In verse 7, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She had no idea. She walks in unsuspecting. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. He gave her opportunity. He asked her a question. He said, tell me the truth. Yeah, no, I I did just what you said I did. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last And when the young men came, they found her dead. The same men that had just buried her husband found her lying there dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. We just told a simple lie. We just kept some of the money for ourselves. Did, did it really matter that some of it was, uh, that we told you we gave it, uh, gave it all to you? Is it really that big a deal? Is it so important that the Spirit of God come down and take their life in that moment? It's just a little white lie. There's no such thing as a white lie. They're all black, dark, evil. Oh, but I'm just trying to spare her feelings. I'm just trying to be nice. It's just laziness because you don't want to go through the work and effort of really loving someone as you should. Oh, we lie to protect all kinds of people. But it's because we don't want to deal with the truth. Every lie we tell, every lie we tell sets us in opposition to God. He is the author of truth. In him is no lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit, when Jesus said he was going to send the Holy Spirit, part of his job was to lead us into truth. 
Satan, his adversary, is the father of lies. Every lie we tell sets us in opposition to the truth and therefore sets us in opposition to God. The first thing I want you to get from this is that, you know what, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a problem. But the truth is in God. And His glory is revealed in truth, not deception, not lies. Every time we lie, we're, un- we're, we're undermining the truth of God. Every time we have to stand and trust in some deception that we weave, it's because we're not trusting in God. Now, there's a lot of people that would say, oh, there's times that you can lie. Because in the Bible, it says, you know, that some of these people lied and good things happened. The, the Rahab, she lied and she hid the spies that were from Israel. And, and, and God, man, he counted her work as righteous. How could it be that a lie would be evil? I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be honest. And there's a couple of other instances from Scripture. How God works in spite of our brokenness and fallenness is oftentimes a mystery. It is oftentimes unexplainable and and not understandable in finite human perspective terms. But He has told us to live in truth, to trust in Him, to trust His truth. And if we tell lies... Who does it demonstrate we're really trusting in? If my life is built on a lie, it's because I'm scared that at some level, in truth, I'll be rejected. In truth, I'll be seen for who I really am. Consider the sin beneath the lie. Ananias and Sapphira, they saw the appreciation that others got. They wanted it. They they wanted to experience it. They wanted to know it. They wanted to be worshipped rather than worshipping the one who deserved to be worshipped. And this is a pattern that's been evident ever since the fall. Ever since the first sin was committed, this was part of what undergirded that. This deception, this lie that we deserve to be in a place of exaltation. Eve, as she's standing there being tempted, she saw that the fruit was good and that it would make her like God she ate our whole life in the flesh our our whole existence in the flesh is about stealing God's glory about not recognizing his worth about not seeing him as God about not being grateful for him as God about trading the truth for a lie and standing up As if we deserve something or are owed something. The Israelites, as they were given the Ten Commandments, they were expected to follow all ten. But to break any of them, to commit adultery, to to covet another's stuff, to, to tell a lie, that broke the first one. You see, because you can't live this way, you can't be sold to deception and still honor God as the only God. It's impossible. It's been the pattern since the very fall of man. 
Paul wrote in Romans 1 that the foundation of fallenness and ever since then that all other sins come from this. Trading the truth for a lie. The lie that Ananias and Sapphira told may have seemed simple, may have seemed small, may have seemed like it wasn't that big of a deal. But it set them at odds with God and was an attempt to steal his glory and honor because at some level they thought they deserved it more than he did. Here's the ironic point to be made. They made it into the pages of Scripture, but not to be honored. Barnabas, a selfless guy who was concerned about others, that's the guy that's remembered well. Humble, willing to give of himself, willing to consider others more significant than himself. Remembered well. Ananias and Sapphira, not an example I would encourage you to follow. See, the irony of this is, you can, still, you can, you can do everything in your power to try to steal God's glory and you will not have it. It cannot be taken. God will be glorified by the evidence of His grace and mercy in your life or He will be glorified by the justice and righteousness and holiness and perfection that's demonstrated as you are condemned. God will be glorified. We can't stop it. And we can live in His truth. And we can strive for that truth. And we can give ourselves to that truth. Or we can set ourselves in opposition to it. What's God worth to you? How much do you value Him? Something else I want you to take from this passage is that the fear of God is a good thing. In fact, I think it's the very reason that God acted in the way that he did. That's twice Luke tells us, once after Ananias dies, once after Sapphira dies, he tells us that the fear of God fell on them all. Oh, we don't have to fear God, right? Because we're, as believers, there's no fear of God. We're, we're assured of our, our salvation and we can rest in His grace. That's absolutely true. You can. You absolutely can. But the fear of God for these saved people became a motivator. What did it motivate them to do? To live a life distinct from the rest of the world. I mean, imagine how different would the church look today? How different would the church look today if rather than emphasizing His grace and our freedom in His grace, if we recognized the fear that He is is owed, that, that He deserves? How different might we act if we thought that at any, any moment, any moment, He could just take you and end you? How different might you act if you knew that God was watching everything you do, even the smallest white lie, and at any moment, 
you could fall down dead. But see, that fear motivated them. And that's a good thing. It's not bad to be motivated by the understanding that God can take us. You see, we don't have anything to fear in this world but the one who can destroy our soul. We have no one to fear but Him. And while, yes, we have assurance of salvation, and while, yes, we can rest in grace, we must recognize we have been called to a distinct, holy life. Because God has done this, He says now, you live like it. I think that fear in our lives might make a big difference. The fear of God gives boundaries. You see, the, the, the idea here is, is that, the, that we do have freedom, but that we can't just run around sinning because we feel like it. Grace is not licensed to live as if we don't have any responsibilities or any cares or concerns in the world. It, it doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want now. Oh, I got God's grace. I'm living in grace. There is no reason for me not to kill, not to lie, not to cheat, not to, not to harm See, that's not what grace is about. You've, you've been given grace, yes. But in that grace, he says, now you're mine. Represent me well. You see, back to that passage from Philippians. Paul is, telling, is talking about how he has found that, that, that nothing is worth knowing Jesus Christ. He says that... Distracting. That nothing is worth knowing, the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that, that he has suffered the loss of all things, and he counts them as rubbish, that he might know Christ. It's an amazing picture, an amazing idea. And then he says, but I don't want you to assume that I have already obtained this or that I am already perfect. But I press on to make this my own. Because Jesus has made me his own. See, what Paul is saying is that because Jesus has made me his own, I am going to persevere. I am going to endure. I am going to strive for perfection. I am going to strive to live in a way that honors and glorifies him. I am going to do the best I can to measure up even though I know I can't. Because he's made me his own. You see, sin is a very serious issue. God takes it very seriously. For those of us of the Calvinist perspective that that we we trust in God's sovereignty and in salvation and we look to his election and, and we recognize that he chose us for salvation... For those of us that have that perspective, we oftentimes tend to lean too far into grace and we just recognize God's grace on us and, oh, there's nothing that can separate us from Him. Well, you know what? I'll just live as I feel like living. And that's wrong. Because not only have we been saved by grace, but we've been saved to good works. And those of us from the Arminian perspective that, 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 that focus more on our choice of salvation than us choosing God, We build these rules and these lists of things that we can and can't do. But we don't do them to honor God. We do them to to prove ourselves safe. We think that not only that that God saved us, but that at some level we, we, we think that we keep ourselves safe by doing these things. And that's a lie. 
You can't save yourself, nor can you keep yourself safe. You can't do either. And by, by doing one or the other, on either end of the spectrum, you are stealing God's glory. You are attempting to rob him of the worth and value and worship that only he deserves. And you are setting yourself at odds with him. He says, look to me and trust in my grace alone. You are saved by faith through through faith, by grace, by grace, through faith, I'll get it right, by grace, through faith, this not of yourselves that no one can boast, no one, not even you, not even the best of you, but you've not been saved to just sit on a chair in a school on a Sunday morning, you've been saved to good works that he set aside for you in advance, you see, we have been saved by grace two good works and we can live in that or we can stand in opposition to it let me ask you again how great is it knowing God how valuable do you count it how special is it to you this weekend I watched a movie, man, it was probably, surprisingly, was one of the goriest movies I've ever seen in my life. It made me cringe. Made me hurt. It wasn't Saw. I did watch that too, though. It was 127 hours. Have you seen the movie? This man, I have forgotten his name already. It's not important. Full of himself. Thinks he's God's gift to hiking, mountain climbing, biking. He just is full of himself. He is confident in himself. He goes out into this canyon all by himself. He's out in the middle of the desert. He bumps into two people accidentally. Spends a little time with them. Goes off on his own again. All by himself. But he doesn't need people. He's climbing down into this crevice. And as he does, a rock slips And he finds himself trapped, his right arm, he finds himself trapped between the rock and the cliff. And he's stuck. He's stuck. And it didn't happen immediately. But as they played footage of recordings and things, he came to recognize how foolish he was. How stupid it was for him to be out there by himself, standing on his own, because all of a sudden he's faced... With the, with the reality that he's not invincible. And he's stuck there, and he's kind of losing it. I mean, there's things happening in his mind. His, his mind, he's seeing things. He's just going nuts. And about day four, almost, well, 127 hours into it, he recognizes that there's something that's kept him tied to this place and is killing him. That's his right arm. So with a dull, worn-out knife that came on a cheap, uh, multi-tool, he begins to hack away at his arm. He recognizes pretty quickly that it's not going to cut through his bone. So he forces himself to break his arm twice. And he gnaws at that arm and he gets to the nerves and he experiences great pain and anguish. But he recognizes that that's the one thing tying him to death. 
he cuts himself free and he, he lives and there's been interviews and everything about him about this story but I want to spin it just a little bit and I want you to consider that in terms of our story what is it that ties you to this world what is it that's got you trapped and pinned is it your physical stuff Is it your desire to be honored above God? Is it your identity? Is is it your lineage? Do you think that in some way you deserve something more? What is it? How worthy is God to you? Is he worth cutting that off? Is he worth ridding yourself of that? What's really at stake is God's glory. He will be glorified. He will be honored. He will be worshipped. You can stand in that truth and align yourself with it and live in that truth at the neglect and humiliation of yourself at times. You can receive great benefit in it, of course. But that means letting go of everything this world has to offer. How worthy is God to you? How great is He to you? Is He worth removing those things in your life that you place before Him and that vie for His position every day? As believers in Jesus Christ, I hope that you would say, yes, it is. And that while you recognize that 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 effort and that work doesn't save you or make you more righteous than God has already made you, I would ask you to consider the, the truth that he's called you now to live a holy life and that you would strive to make this your own because he has made you his own. If you're sitting here today and you don't, you've not believed and, and you've not trusted in Christ before, I would challenge you to consider that the sin in your life is pinning you to this world and to the death that comes from this world. Only Jesus Christ can offer you salvation. It is only in Him. There is no other name in heaven or on earth by which men can be saved. Trust in Him alone. And as you trust in Him, you stand up and you walk in light of that truth. How great is God to you? We're right in the middle of a season called Lent. There's a lot of baggage that goes with Lent because of the the tradition of it. But I think that there's some worth considering giving things up in this life, physical, tangible things that we can measure to demonstrate our love and obedience to our Savior. As we approach Easter and we consider the work that Jesus Christ has done for us, I would challenge you and encourage you to consider how you might respond to Him. Not just in saying you believe, but acting as you believe. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have saved us. We, we thank you that your work cannot be undone by us. But I do pray that we would hear the words today from your scripture, that we would see the example set in these, these two offerings, these two gifts given. One, completely and utterly for your glory and honor, and the other for the glory of man. God, would you build in us a generous heart? A heart that's generous and and sold to giving and loving and, and striving for others. Not that we might be exalted, not that we might get a big head and be able to stand up and act as if we've done something, but that we might point to you and offer you the glory and honor you deserve. And, and, and just praise you with our mouth and praise you with our hearts and praise you in our actions. Father, I pray that we would be examples of your glory. Not because of the condemnation, but because of the grace and mercy you're bestowing on us, because of the good work you're doing in us. I pray that you would motivate us with the understanding that you are sovereign and that you are, you are it, that there is no other. Everything else leads to death and that only you can bring life. I pray, God, that if there's one here today, anyone here today, that's never trusted or is holding on to some action or work that they've done for their salvation, that they would recognize they have nothing to offer and that they would trust in you alone and then walk in light of that. We love you. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we are so grateful for your work. Holy Spirit, Bring application. Bring truth into our hearts. Teach us of Jesus. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week we come to a time of response where we sing, we worship, we praise God for the work that He's done in light of the proclamation of His Word. Every week there's no telling how how God might be meeting you today. Every week it surprises me to, to hear different people say different things about how the message might have spoken to them. Whatever he's doing in your life, respond well. Respond in a way that leads to his glory and honor and it humbles you. It's all about his glory. He deserves it. You don't. Whatever he's doing in your heart, respond as we sing.